I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. This has been a, a project that's haunted me for a, a very long time. Um, and in a sense, it's really a conclusion to a book that began in London. Uh, called Lights Out for the Territory, in which I set off from my own doorstep in Hackney, just X marks the spot, and did a, a great V walk across London down to an event in Greenwich University that I was invited to, some writing on a wall, and Greenwich University turned out not to be in Greenwich, but to be in Woolwich. And that's very much how things went on. Um, I came back up along the Lee Valley which is now being rapidly swallowed up into the new Olympic dream. The old thing that I started writing on is disappearing before our very eyes. And after a second book, which took me out around the fringes of London, London Orbital, the last leg of that, and in Kevin Jackson, my companion's case, literally the last leg, we were coming through Epping Forest at night, and it was the most sort of horrible part of the whole walk. Rain in our faces, cars streaming past. You couldn't diverge into the forest. And I kind of had a crossover vision that this is where, at High Beach, the poet John Clare had been kept for a number of years or stayed or lived. And it was an unlikely presence. But it was a presence that meant something in my life because... Uh, my wife's family had, had come from that part of the world. Her father had, had grown up in Glinton, which is where Claire went to school. And there, w there was a, a rumor that, that he had said that he, he thought they were connected, they were related to Claire. So that, that was at the back of my mind. And more than anything else, the wonderful prose of Claire's own account, this journal that he wrote up after the event from scraps written on newspapers and in little bits of notebook of this three-and-a-half-day walk when suddenly he leaves Epping Forest, he leaves London behind, and he walks back, as he thinks, to his uh, phantom first love, a, a woman called Mary Joyce, who's already dead. And the walk becomes a kind of forgetting, a kind of erasure of memory of everything that went wrong and an attempt to reconnect for the last time with his muse, the source of his poetry, which was no longer available to him. And he arrives in the, in the village of Warrington, which has now been entirely swallowed up by Peterborough. 
And in the village is this cart because his real wife, Patty, has been forewarned of his progress. He's been spotted coming over the bridge in Peterborough. Some neighbors from Northborough have thrown a few coins at him and he's been, been in the pub and eaten really for the first time in the three and a half days apart from chewing grass. And as he limps into Warrington, so the cart with his wife approaches. And it's one of these really terrible moments, I think, in the whole of English literary history where he doesn't recognize his wife and he's, he's pulled up onto the cart and he rides the last miles home to Northborough to a place he doesn't recognize because he's, he's moved from his, his original home in Helpston, the cottage, to a, to a place on much more on the edge of the fens, an entirely different landscape, although it's only two miles away. And the horizon is infinite, and all the demons come from that side, all the memories of Viking invasion, all the things that come in by water and out of mist, all of that haunts Northborough. And he can't live there, he can't live at home. His wife tries him, and he disappears into Northampton Asylum for the rest of his life. And so... This walk, the drama of this walk, connecting up London, which was my territory, with the territory that sort of belonged to a part of my wife's memory and family that she knew nothing much about and I didn't know anything about either, was something that had to be done. But in a sense, doing the walk and writing about the walk was never enough because that landscape of Middle England was vanishing, just like Clare was erasing his own memory. I think we've managed successfully to erase a lot of the memory of this Middle England. Walking around the M25, I, I constantly met all kinds of eccentrics and storytellers, people ready to give me the history of erased asylums, dog walkers, people fishing with magnets for pillage and streams, um, highways agency planters and visionaries. People of every stripe were out there. But when I struck out across England and left Hartford behind and headed across country to Stevenage, beyond St. Neots and up to Stilton, there was nobody there. It was, a, it was a deserted landscape. It was a landscape of overgrown airfields, huge industrial fields of, royal, of uh, oilseed rape, farms that seemed to be deserted except by angry dogs, village pubs that were shut. It was, it was deeply depressing to understand that really the, the future would be the road itself. The road itself would acquire housing, Barrett estates, all the rest of that, and the landscape would be deserted. So I'll, I'll read first from, from the beginning of the book when uh, the, the first passage in the book describes actually the last day's walk from the village of Stilton across to where I met uh, Anna at Glinton. We are this bright morning, pleased with ourselves, having come so far, and pleased with this land in which nobody moves or stirs, no wood smoke, no barking dogs. Our beacon is a mast on the horizon, the hill crest, a booster or photovoltaic scanner. Middle England, as we have discovered in these last few days, is stitched together from active or abandoned airfields, unpeopled farms, drowned villages, and uncertain tracks that are visible only if you insist on them. 
You see the empty quarter, hedges cropped, absence of rubbish, middens, burnt-out shells of cars, and you sense money, the lush chlorophyll of liquidity. After the enclosure acts, Claire felt uncomfortable. In a newly ordered field, he was watched, spied on. He'd much better find himself a road. I dread walking where there was no path, and pressed with cautious tread the meadow swathe, and always turned to look with weary eye, and always feared the farmer coming by. John Barrell, in the sharpest book on this subject, The Idea of Landscape and the Sense of Place, 1730 to 1840, explains how this system works, the reading of view. There is, as 18th century poets who learnt from the painter Cloud understood, a circling landscape which in obedience to accepted rules can be projected onto canvas or given structure in verse. First you require a proper elevation, a hill overlooking the Campania, the model is Roman, and then a soft blue horizon. How gratefully the eye leaps towards it, this hint of the celestial, before tracking back across an arrangement of parallel bands, towers, ruins and trees, peasants at work, groups standing around the entrance to a cave. There's a nice tension, Barrel suggests, between the prospect and the properly schooled viewer. Otherwise, landscape is chaos. The busy particulars that overwhelm John Clare, everything happening at once, and all of it with an equal claim on the observer's attention. The horizon, according to Barrel, is at once the climax and the starting point of the composition. Dutifully beyond Stilton, we search for it, this ambiguity. We tramp through fields marked off with bushes, thorn clumps, and stands of trees. We're not excursionists, pastoral aesthetes. We're stalkers of the middle ground, reading contours, observing and observed. We must reach that radio mast, those pylons, to understand where we are, to appreciate everything we fail to notice when we pass through here before, foot down, in those pods, our cars. Two dogs appear. One is black and glossy, a Labrador retriever compromised with a savagely docked tail which it attempts to wag. The other is loosely of the collie German Shepherd wolf breed and amiable to excess. They were hanging around waiting for us by a sign which said, Trespassers and exercising of dogs strictly prohibited. These animals couldn't function without human company, a role to perform, and failing that, we will serve. At worst, they seemed to know which direction to take. I had the feeling they'd done all this before. They'd walked out in company and returned alone. Lurid sunshine on a red-gray road. No cars, no delivery vans, no people. Welcome to Middle England. Zanarkshire, in the wake of the Lloyds fiasco, the Debt Mountain, the Blairite establishment of urban fixers and spinners, no fox hunting, acres of GM crops, is the home of Dolor, state-sponsored clinical depression, Valium villages under the ever-present threat of imported sex criminals and Balkan bandits, human landfill dumped in an off-highway nowhere, an uneconomic airship hangar, a reclaimed bunker, enclosure suddenly is a personal matter. You've been 
shrink-wrapped in your own skin and you can't get out. And that's where the blameless horizons, that wood, those hills, begins to hurt. Immaculate properties from catalogue, new furniture under plastic sheeting. Television sets murmuring softly in empty rooms. Faux rustics in monster vehicles are servicing the U.S. Air Force base at Alcambry or starting early for their circumnavigation of Peterborough. It would be quicker and less bothersome to commute straight to London. Those who are left are invisible, facing up to the consequences of the good life, the glutinous subsoil of somebody else's labor, rituals of service and release, drink, madness, suicide. Don't watch those property programs. Buy into a conversion lottery for a barn you don't need and you can't afford because at the end of it you're misplaced. The heat of you, the immortal soul is left behind and it looks comfortable drifting through on a July morning. But living off-road in this summer country is as hard as it gets. When we, in fact, arrived at Clare's village of Helpston, um... The cottage, which he always described as a hovel or hut, was now gleaming white and hung with those uh, swinging baskets of flowers and all the heritage tokens, and it was for sale at uh, a little short of half a million pounds, which was one of those movements in time that I uh, appreciated. Uh, and in fact, I've read recently uh, in the Telegraph, I think, that... Uh, it's being bought as a as a, a study centre. So in a sense, um, everything has come full circle. But nevertheless, you're still in Helpston. You're still in this piece of captured landscape that's just hanging on uh, on the edge of Peterborough, which is growing and growing like a cancer, and which is the sort of epicentre of the, the new vision of Britain in many ways. Um, so it's a, it's a funny landscape to find yourself in. Every, everything is um, both posthumous and potential. The, the sense of reality wears away. And in that way, it's easier to get at the story and the mythology of Clare as someone disturbed and displaced than it is to, to think about him in London. The thing about... Claire is only really understood when you, when you do step into that landscape. And you see the, the little bowl of hills that surrounds Helpston and the notion that you can escape the eye of the village by moving a very short distance into woodland. There were trees he would hide away. There were places where the birds, the animals, the flowers, all of this knew him and therefore he had existence. And if he walked beyond that, as he did as a child, when he set out on this journey to the edge of the horizon, he no longer ha had a personal identity. The creatures didn't know him, and therefore he was unknown. He had no memory. And this horror of horizon surrounded him, which is the great thing of the, the fen landscape that is lurking there, it's this land that has come up from the sea. And that's very pertinent to the experience Clare had of London. In a sense, he made this terrible Faustian contract with a local uh, bookseller in Stamford, which was the, 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 the more pleasant of the two local towns. It was a real active market centre with several newspapers and a radical tradition. 
and Burley House, which stood on the edge of it as a place of patronage. And, and Claire goes there, and, and the bookseller has a connection with London with the publisher Taylor, who was the, also the publisher of John Keats. But to be published is to be made into a kind of performance, as we all know now, in the, in the grander age of celebrity that has overwhelmed all of this, even in that day. He had to be presented as a peasant poet. He had to be brought to London and exhibited, even at the point when his own books were no longer viable. The first book is a big success. The Vogue is there, he's shown off, and he stays buttoned up in his long green coat like a grub or a caterpillar, sweating in these social gatherings he's brought to, gulping pints or whatever's put in front of him, and having the horror of walking home. And I think we probably haven't looked enough into the effect of these uh, three visits to London and the final visit when he goes to the asylum. Because having come to London, having done that journey, 14 hours in a coach from Stamford, passing through fields where he sees the field laborers and has a moment when his soul jumps between the two things, seeing how he would look from a, a laborer in the field looking back and also seeing himself looking out and knowing that enclosures have changed everything, even though as a laborer he has to work on enclosures. That transit is a losing of all the memories and all the connections with Mary Joyce and childhood and the muse, everything he wants, and are putting him forward to become reinvented and somebody else in London, and it can't be done. And in that gap is the loss. And so the walking back is a kind of healing and repairing of that rift which occurs. Um, he arrives in London at night, obviously, and is immediately taken down by the person who's looking after him to, to look at the Thames and to try and recreate the great epiphany of William Wordsworth on Westminster Bridge. He's presented with this view of the Thames. And it, it means nothing to him. He says, it's, well, it's not as much as Whittlesea Mere, which is the local inland lake or large pond. And London has to be reconfigured in terms of what he knows. And in that fracture also begins future damage. There were four visits to London and it was never the same place. Clare persuaded himself as his acquaintance expanded as he managed to walk between Fleet Street and Stratford Place off Oxford Street that the city absorbed him and tolerated his presence. Long before the steady stare of camera poles and CCTV monitors, he felt the prick of eyes on his skin, watchers primed to spring, trapdoors hidden in the narrows of Chancery Lane, cannibal cellars, blood drained from a wound in his throat, they left him, dangling on a meat hook, a husk of dry paper. London was a scarlet nightmare. When I used to go anywhere by myself, especially Mrs. Emerson's, I used to sit at night till very late because I was loath to start, not for sake of leaving the company, but for fear of meeting with supernaturals, even in the busy paths of London. And though I was a stubborn disbeliever in such things in the daytime, yet at night those terrors came upon me tenfold, and my head was full of the terribles, as a gossip's thin, death-like shadows and goblings with saucer eyes continually shaping in the darkness from my haunted imagination and when I saw any one of a spare figure in the dark passing or going on my side my blood has curdled cold at the foolish apprehension of his being a supernatural agent whose errand 
might be to carry me away at the first dark alley we came to. Clare's host, Burkhart, led the poet to the river at Westminster Bridge, a hoped-for Wordsworthian epiphany, and Clare's soul was resolutely dull. The nocturne, silver lights in liquid darkness, was spurned. I was disappointed, thinking I should have seen a fresh-water sea, and when I saw, it was less than Whittlesea Mere. Women parading the streets were of greater interest, perfumed exoticism, so many and so magnificent. Burkhart shocked Clare by revealing their trade. The weary, befuddled tourist couldn't get his bearings. Nothing was as it appeared. The Helpston poet imposed a system of equivalence on London. The Thames becomes Whittlesea Mere. Westminster Abbey is Peterborough Cathedral. St Paul's stands for Glinton Spire. One of the gorgeous night walkers might be Mary Joyce. He refuses to venture in high literary stocks. London reconstituted as a wild geology of cliffs and crags and cataracts. No laudanum, no lakes for John. The murky expanse of Whittlesea Mere, witnessed during that long, dull voyage from Peterborough to Wisbeach, stayed with him in a way that the muddy Thames never would. Clare was impervious to German metaphysics. His romanticism consisted of viewing prostitutes in their nocturnal perambulations as grand and stately creatures, in acknowledging prize-fighters as poets and poets as labouring men. In John Taylor's Fleet Street office, Keats used the back of a letter from Clare to the publisher, a litany of ill health under payment and bores and bores of verse, to tinker with a draft of Lamia. Clare was unsentimental about his cockney colleague's damaged lungs, the voyage to Italy. I should like to see the fizz of the man, he wrote to Hesse, his other publisher, before he drops off, and hope he will at last, and hope he will last until next winter, when I shall hazard myself to town, unaccompanied. Born in a Moorgate pub, Keats was the voice of London. He had escaped, he'd broken away, sickness, foreign parts. The two poets never met. Give my respects to Keats. Tell him I am half-mad, melancholy dog in a moosey, misty country that he has lately cast behind him. When Keats died, unsold stock piled high, Taylor presented Clare with a copy of Chaucer that had once belonged to the London poet. Clare's library grew until it threatened to overwhelm the limits of his wife's tolerance. His tastes were orthodox, his reading wide. He valued books as objects. He solicited gifts from other writers, from patrons. Promised many, he received few. One complimentary volume of Keats, gifted by Taylor, Clare sent back to demand the poet's inscription. He badgered Peter de Wint for a drawing. To keep the incidents of the city fresh in his mind for future exploitation, Clare made shorthand notes, mem, ladies thronging the streets at night. He worked hard to flesh out his self-portrait as a premature flaneur. One of my greatest amusements while in London was reading booksellers' windows. I was always fond of this from a boy, and my next greatest amusement was the curiosity of seeing literary men. Churches, theatres, the premises of John Murray, Lord Byron's publisher. Dues paid, Clare lost himself in the mob, the incessant scurrying of tradesmen, whores, beggars, loiterers. 
He was hustled from place to place, room to room, patron to patron. They tried his conversation, Lord Radstock and Mrs. Emerson. They were short of a biddable peasant, rough trade with a bundle of unedited manuscripts, a non-insurrectionary poet who knew how to be grateful, so they set up funds, they badgered publishers. This first London excursion, novelty. Muffled in a long green coat, Clare comes to terms with the conditions of his notoriety, being watched, gossiped over, tested. Frederick Martin tells us that he was unwilling to play the part of a newly discovered monkey. He remained unimpressed by the tourist circuit, the gaudy of Vauxhall pleasure gardens. He dragged himself to one of Taylor's literary dinners. He met Hazlitt, a silent picture of severity. J. H. Reynolds, he would punch you with his puns very keenly without hurting your feelings. Henry Carey, Lord Radstock, and by way of Radstock, the flutteringly determined poetess and collector of poets, Mrs. Eliza Emerson. There was one empty chair. John Keats was ill. The best of London was quitting it. A more comfortable coach ride, the Bull Inn at Ware, a serving girl caught his eye, a sonnet. Clare's London poems and the residue of this visit are prose. The notes of a survivor, gossip, anecdote, confession. His new friends, concerned patrons, nudge him towards marriage with the definitively pregnant Patty Turner. What happened was that having um, repeated, as far as was possible, John Clare's walk, um, staying in the same places, though not under the same circumstances, because when Clare gets to Stevenage, he, he lies himself down on some trusses of clover in a shed that he breaks into, remembering to put his head to the north before he goes to sleep so that he knows which way to go when he wakes up in the morning. And he dreams of uh, that he's in, in the bed or lying with, with Mary Joyce. And his, his shoulder in the night becomes completely stiff. And he thinks it's from the weight of her being there, though, of course, she's gone, not there, dead. We stayed in Stevenage and, and uh, booked into a kind of, uh, as it turned out, Faulty Towers B&B. Um, in advance and arrived there very, very late at night, completely exhausted on our hands and knees, having done sort of more than 30-odd miles, and uh, the booking was denied, uh, probably because of the way we looked. And as a result of that, um, the person in charge, seeing how crazed we looked and prepared to sleep on the gravel outside, um, took us to the Ibis Hotel, which was fantastic, you know, which is the cathedral of the road, really. It's... Uh, <laughs> because it's run by robots, there's nobody there, they'll take anybody, the food comes out of machines, and it's, uh, it was perfect. You know. <laughs> the second night, where again Claire slept in a wet ditch, we'd uh, booked into a, a pub in St. Neots, which had huge uh, drug signs outside, and I kind of couldn't work out if they were prohibitions or adverts. <laughs> uh, the, the place had wonderful curls of human hair embedded in the soap, and the, the, the soggy f mat in the room was as, as if it had been some kind of jungle scene for a film, and you crunched and squished across it. Um, again, it was, it, was, it was perfectly English in its sense of what you would get travelling across England. There was no food, of course, on offer, um, plenty of drink. 
um, and from there to Stilton, where we actually did connect up completely with the route of Clare, who, who was foot-founded as he arrived in Stilton and uh, slept out on the street, on the main street, which was a big coaching place with inns. And women looked at him and said, he's faking, he's faking, and no, he isn't. And then he realized he, he knew where he was at last. He was on the road to Peterborough, and it all folded back. So we'd done this walk, but in a sense that gave you one kind of narrative, but it wasn't enough. And it was only coming off-road by a series of accidents into something just the other side of the A1 or the Great North Road from Stilton, stumbling across what had been Clare's Whittlesea Mere, that the thing really started to open up. Because Whittlesea Mere had been this grand inland lake, the, the largest, some, like something in the Lake District, the largest in the south of England, and it had been drained in the 1850s entirely. And now it's the lowest point in England, and it's a very haunted and curious spot. And going down there in an evening, someone had also told me that I should check out Engine Farm, which was right out in the fens. So I walked out on this Fenland Road in the dusk and found this curious farm, and in the farmyard were these great white stone blocks, which was the only thing I could have see that was important enough to, to justify a journey. And it turned out that the, the blocks of stone had mason's marks on, and they had fallen from rafts that were travelling between the quarries at Barnack, where most of the stone for Ramsey Abbey, Ely Cathedral, Cambridge Colleges had come from. And they'd passed over Whittlesea Mere, which was a great lake. Uh, the raft had lost the stones. They'd sunk into the peaty soil at the bottom and now that the, the, the lake was drained after all these years out of the soil came the blocks that were originally intended for Ely Cathedral with the marks as to where they would have been uh, from the 12th century and it's a kind of fantastic moment of, of everything in terms of the story turning itself inside out water disappearing on one side of the road on the other side of the A1 they were actually flooding valleys to make Grantham water and Rutland water. On this side it had disappeared and all the narrative had disappeared with it leaving these things to come out of the ground. And I, I kind of at that point broke off and, and thought I must pursue this by another route. I must um, go to Northampton and look into the, the period that Claire had spent there in, in the Northampton General Lunatic Asylum which had just opened up the time he went in and also look into the history of another woman, uh, Lucia Anna Joyce, James Joyce's daughter, who had been in that hospital much longer than Claire and had not died until the 1980s, and it was really a, a figure forgotten. In the way that Claire was not forgotten, people came to visit him, people still transcribed his poems. He walked out into the town in Northampton and sat in an alcove and agreed to write poems for quids of tobacco and, and was a kind of public figure. Lucia Joyce was not. She was a ghost, and her, the estate saw to it that the novel she'd written was destroyed and her correspondence disappeared, and she was left there. And this is a very haunting thing. And uh, that became a whole secondary story. But I also, in the book, recalled... Uh, we're staying in the Ibis again, of course. Um, my first visit to Northampton because the guide who, who had taken us around when we came back was, was the graphic novelist and now novelist novelist Alan Moore um, and 
he had uh, gone to school just on the other side of the wall from the asylum and knew it well from another perspective and had broken in there and swum in the pool and all that. So he was, a, he was an excellent guide and is a terrific uh, historian to the mythology of the town. And I remembered doing this event tonight that he'd, he'd brought me there for the very first time to do one of the first supposedly readings and bookshop events that I'd ever done. Uh, and I thought, because we're doing this, I might just recall that moment. It was quite amusing. The bookshop event was salutary. It disabused me of the notion that I might one day sell a book outside London. Until you've been there, someone like Northampton, you don't understand the system. I used to imagine that published novelists made livings comparable to bus conductors, remember them, or postmen, another anachronism, that new titles pre-computerization would be distributed throughout England after having been reviewed and promoted. This was a proper do, the kind that is now reserved for non-writing writers, faces with hovering PR accompanists, refreshments, a heap of books, returns on day release from the warehouse, folks milling round a display and lifting a title and reading the blurb and then returning it neatly to the pyre. We keep up this weather talk, motorway talk, until it becomes obvious that all these people were employees. It was a duty to play the crowd and to drink the drink and to nibble ostentatiously. A rep breezed in to witness this debacle. I had the courtesy title then of Poetry Editor for one of Rupert Murdoch's satellites, which meant that I approved hardbacks that would appear as paperbacks and I initiated mini-anthologies, long-term career retrospectives that would instantly be pulped. I couldn't find any of these books on the shelves. Making conversation, I asked the rep why this was. Do we publish poetry, he said? Not one book was sold. All the non-shows of the shop were already camped out in a round church, a nice cross-section of long hairs, bright eyes, no pupils, red eyes, deltas of blood, benevolent occultists, cashiered hell's angels, dopers, anoraks, the pre- and post-sectioned, scorch marks of the temples and carved here tattoos around their throats. I read first at the Holy Sepulchre. I preached my profane sermon quietly, making no real impression on the space. And then Brian Catling delivered his coded formula language, sticky with nerve and edge, and a man groaned. He climbed to his feet and was rapidly expelled to return with a revolver. It was, Alan Moore explained, quite an ordinary Northampton night. The intervention by this homicidal medicine head of local notoriety was a felt response to Catling's challenge that words nudge the world. The overexcited literary critic was beguiled into a pub and offered a drink. He smashed the glass and lunged at his minder's throat. Teeth were spat on the floor. Moore describes the outcome. Thrown from the barroom in the wake of his attacker to the street outside, Fred the minder found himself staring into the quivering muzzle of a gun and hoping he wouldn't die between the labour exchange and the inland revenue, a victim of that local speciality, the stroll by shooting. I slept downstairs that night with a sword, unconsciously sucked into the crusader aura of the church and the event. Warned of the psycho-sniper, we dodged through the graveyard into a muted celebration and later the labour club. 
Alan was a member in good standing. Old boys nursed their drinks in a narrow sepia room. The bearded Northampton Magus, recognised and saluted in London, was integrated into this dim and smoky scene, a figure no more or less extraordinary than any of the recreational pint-swallowers. Northampton was Moore's family. He eavesdropped on conversations and conspiracies, waiting, as all writers do, for something he could exploit. Northampton threw up very extraordinary things. In researching Lucia Joyce, I discovered the presence of Samuel Beckett, that, that really Beckett had been the only person who visited her in later times and who gave money to the nurses at the hospital. And he had the other reason of going there, that this was his one first-class cricket match at the Northampton Cricket Ground. And then in, in researching family things there, I discovered there was actually a distant connection between myself and Beckett in the way that the Clare connections I'd been hammering away at would not reveal themselves. And so the whole story drifted out as inevitably it would have to into this fabulous nothing, this landscape of the Fens, and we get on a narrow boat and pass through the land at the same level as Clare would have known when he travels from Peterborough to Wisbeach. In other words, you're down and the land is, is up above you and you really move out of time and then everything gradually does begin to reveal itself and it gets stranger and stranger and all the loose threads of the story by travelling on water very slowly for the same length of time as the war could be does settle in and does resolve itself. Uh, and I'll just finish by reading a short piece from the town of Whittlesea which is where they have a straw bear festival. And we arrived there and checked out the museum, which strangely was open. Step inside the museum and wait for your eyes to adjust to the dim light, and there it is, the photograph, the confirmation of all the weirdness that has attended our passage through this landscape. A man attached by a rope to an ambulant mound of mud and twigs, a battered top hat with fungal outgrowth bursting through the lid, moleskin trousers with much of the mole still evident, greasy, freestanding, heavy waistcoat and jacket cut from an army blanket. And in this person's left hand, what Catling took to be when I showed him the postcard in Oxford, a brick. The professor... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Knew nothing of Whittlesea and the brickworks, but he had the climate absolutely right. Driver, rope, 
brick bare. Pay up or I cut the bond and let this creature free because that's what they call the bear's attendants, keepers or drivers. Bear walkers come, as I would discover, watching film of that winter ritual in two types. An old fellow, flounced and feathered and only a little drunk in the morning, who minds the bear as he guides it from public house to public house. And a younger, fiercer man who drives the exhausted beast with goads and tugs on the rope as the sweating straw thing staggers into the evening. And on the following morning, ash in their mouths, chastened rioters burn the bear, a damp bonfire in a bleak field. This brick is a collecting box, a slit in its lid. Give us your pennies. The Whittlesea Straw Bear Festival is a harvest ritual at the wrong time, an Eastern European folk revival in the wrong place. Bears in this country would be awesome, harbingers of thieves and gypsies, a vertical thing like the chimneys and spires that dominate the flat land. John Clare knowing and sympathizing with medicine show tricksters and wandering mountebanks identified with the bear. Remember his remark about Stamford, about being dragged into it like a bear and a fiddler to awake. John Clare and his broken father on the road to Milton Hall in search of patronage, a bear and a driver. Hard winters, ploughboys without employment, they use the bear as their weapon. One of them plays the part, he's tailored into straw. The others dance the Whittlesea streets, demanding money to carry them through the winter months. Money for drink against the threat of riot, burnings, straw bear or your thatched roof. The custom is settled on the Tuesday following Plough Monday, always the first Monday after Twelfth Night. In dark January, Christmas decorations put aside, gaunt men, blacked up, make sport of their grievances. They were, by tradition, the spirits of the returning dead, looking for warmth. A boy, with tightly twisted straw bands around his legs and arms, sticks fastened to his shoulders, meets at a point over his head in a rustic dance. Barbara, Euphon, Todd's scarecrow, Wurzel Gummidge, brought to life, would be the English version, tamed for a juvenile market. The Whittlesea bear was a much crueler performance. The boy could see very little. He's pulled this way and that, and all around him the noise of drunk drunks and dancers. Not Morris men with clapping sticks, but mud-faced molly gangs. Even now, in the film of the 1997 festival, the mollies are in evidence, the new road molly, old hunts molly, gog magog molly, old glory molly, seven champions molly, the meeple molly men, handsome molly, pig dyke molly. And from Alan Moore's Northamptonshire, covens like the Kettering Witchmen, dark and mysterious as their name suggests, with dances such as the Wicker Man and the Wild Hunt, faces part white, part black, feathered top hats, smoked glasses, performances that are pagan in the extreme. The burning recalls the sacrificial bulls of Knossos, Cretan farmers driving cattle through the flames for purification. Swaying drunks, reelers and stumblers in hobnail boots, afternoon dancers at the pub door of the windmill inn, circling, crossing, clapping, for themselves and not for the watching crowd, labourers with women's dresses over fieldwork jackets, travestied gangs, Uncle Tom faces and white eyes, leaping and stamping over a prone figure. The town gives itself up to riot and music-making, the beast, the bear, in its pointy penitence cowl is driven from pub to pub. 
It had become a German bear custom to hug a lady from the crowd and fall backwards with her on top of the bear, and only a kiss will release his grip. Whittlesey, that decorous market town, old island, goes mad, urgent, uncomic intent. Some of the Molly gangs look stern as Belfast orange men in hats and sashes and Masonic regalia, melon-head prods converted to voodoo, drink taken. It's a terrible thing to imagine, like Ian Paisley trying on his wife's frock or John Ford Indians capering round a burnt-out wagon wearing the Sunday dresses of women they have raped and killed. Molly dancing, so the festival program claims, is by nature august. Hobnail dancers accompanied through town by mobs of ploughboys dressed in white shirts and smocks, cracking whips. It was said that if you did not contribute even one penny, you would find a, a furrow ploughed across your lawn by morning. The Festival of the Straw Bear was halted in 1909. It had become too wild, said Whittlesey's police inspector, an excuse for cadging and debauchery. Prison sentences were meted out to miscreants. After a breach of 71 years, the straw bear re-emerged from his hide in 1980, in keeping with the spirit of the times. The advance of that molly lady, Margaret Thatcher, from neighbouring Grantham to Westminster, a man-woman, heels and handbags, to the centre of power. Thank you. Um, hi, would you consider yourself a romantic? Um, yes. <laughs> or a post-romantic? Or uh, no, 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 please, no, no post things. <laughs> um, no, um, obviously my basic impulse is uh, romantic. Um, and it's fascinated with that rather than the classical. I'm not, not comfortable with the notions of landscape that Thompson and the painters uh, aligned. I'm much more comfortable with the deranged and visionary and the moving across landscape, all of that. But obviously, it's a difficult position to sustain, so I think it comes up to be something like a kind of cynical romantic or a kind of schizophrenic romantic or some factored kind, but never post and pre, if you like. <laughs> and, and sort of to, to just conclude that, it really, in a sense, the book begins as a romantic notion, the, uh, the idea of being able to retrace this journey and also somehow factor in um, the connection, whatever it would be, between my wife's family and Claire, and to get some understanding of that, and then the actuality, the grunge actuality of being on the road itself, which always unpicks romanticism and, and turns it into something satirical and comic. It's like, um, I think, De Quincey going hand in hand with Hunter S. Thompson. Could you um, tell us a bit more about the, the Molly gangs? Uh, yeah. The, the interesting thing with the Molly gangs, as far as I was concerned, was that the the Great North Road really proved to be a great spine and a division between two kinds of cultures. Because when you sit down at the Bell Inn in Stilton, which is a, a coaching inn from the, the period of Clare and still has that um, square in which you'd sit down to eat, you will be kind of infiltrated by the proper Morris dancing kind of heritage, people who clap sticks and dance around jingling bells in a 
quite a pleasant and nice way. But you cross the road into this winter thing of these molly gangs, and they're much more savage. Um, I'm not sure exactly what their derivation is, but they they seem to emerge straight out of the landscape in the way that the bear does. And and you would you would actually believe that they were farm workers, even though there aren't many of those left, because they 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 dress in this incredible way of a thick, heavy farm working jacket, corduroy trousers tied with string, and on top of that a dress and and a, often a blackened face and a top hat. And, and so they, they, it is a kind of Fenland voodoo as far as I'm concerned. And there is a huge tradition of it. And um, each area, each village would have its own group. And I think the, the event at Whittlesea is for the, the Straw Bear Festival is, is the great gathering where they competitively drunk, dr- dance and drink and move between a series of pubs right through the day and then on the following morning um, the, the burning of the bear. I think it's a a phenomenal kind of um, wicker man type thing in, in Middle England that's uh, not been heritaged or taken away from the people who actually perform it. In the, in the line that gives the book its title is Claire's pun on horizon, deliberate. Yeah. I, I think it's just a, a misspelling and, and not, not a deliberate pun in Claire's case. Um, in my case, it, it was obviously a deliberate pun because I wanted to invoke the orisons as well as the horizons. Um, that I thought the key to Claire was this little piece I quote at the beginning. Um, and for me, the, the great discovery of the whole thing was reading a lot of Claire's prose um, in its fabulous sort of unpunctuated, individually spelt state. Um, and one, one of the things I had to do, which was the, the ultimate climax of the book, was to, to go back to Northampton Library and be given the actual journal, um, Claire's handwritten journal, and also a larger ledger into which he'd copied the journal, and to sit there with this magnifying glass, um, actually shivering with a fever that I had, and it had to be done, inch by inch by inch, progressing through this script and making transcriptions so that it would be totally accurate. And... um, that felt very much like redoing the walk, following along the, the barbed wire of his language, and also feeling this shouldn't be happening. They, you know, they shouldn't have let me do this without white gloves and a sort of glass case. I'm, I'm sitting here. This is a fabulous moment for me, but um, maybe this book will not survive too many outings of this kind. Anyway, the, the key sentence, I think, was, as a, as a young boy, when Claire leaves the village and goes off on this walk as he thinks to find the horizon and he's recalling this in later times and he, w- with his spellings I had imagined that the world's end was at the edge of the horizon, horizon and that a day's journey was able to find it so I went on with my heart full of hopes pleasures and discoveries expecting when I got to the brink of the world that I could look down like looking into a large pit and see into its secrets, the same as I believed I could see heaven by looking into the water. And I think I, 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 my own reading of the Clare biography, or many Clare biographies, but the Jonathan Bate one is, is the sort of the definitive one now, but going, going back over all the others, I suppose about four incidents really, really were crucial, and everything built around those. One of them was this walk to discover the horizon and get lost and getting out of his knowledge. 
One of them was the, the boat trip as an adolescent when he's sent to try and get a job in Wisbeach. And so he has that experience of this traveling by water through the Fenland landscape. And when he gets there, he's not himself. Again, he's been dressed up in strange clothes that his mother has patched together for him. And they, they sent him, send him back immediately as sort of unfinished. It's, it's, a, it's an aborted journey. And then from Burley House, he escapes with other gardeners and walks north to try and establish himself and, and loses all sense of the horizon and all sense of where the sun rises and sets. Everything is out of his knowledge and he can't, doesn't work. And then finally coming to London. And all of those journeys and things become almost shamanic tests. I think whatever he becomes at the end is due to that. And this word, orison, horizon, is, is really crucial. It just comes back again and again and again. And... Uh, the whole pain of the, the moment of English life where the horizon is no longer there, it's enclosed, all the patches of ground are broken up. And I think what happens is that the people, the peasants, as it were, as they were described at that period, either they had the push and the bottle to grab pieces of land and rose at that point and became the farmers, cottagers, whatever. They had an investment. Or... They drifted out of the story. They, they went off to the towns as laborers or workers, or they just disappeared and disintegrated. So there's a, there's a huge division at that moment in English culture, and Clare's there and part of it. And secondly, he's in the fields when he sees the, these men doing what seems to be a kind of occult exercise, but they're surveying for the railway. And once the railway has come through, that's it. That's, that's the end of that. You're connected. You're, you're flowing into King's Cross. Peterborough, King's Cross, all of it is there. And this place is no longer a mystery. It's no longer 14 hours in a coach, three days walking from London. The two things are absolutely connected. And Peterborough is now an extension of London. Do you, do you see a, an a, a analogy between uh, enclosure uh, back in the 18th century and today's property ownership? Uh, yeah, I think I think we're at a moment, a, a similar moment in a different way. Because the last time I went to have a poke round in Helpston and, and see um, Claire's cottage, what had been very nice in the in the first time we found it, and it was all made over and it was offered for sale at huge price. But nevertheless, you could go around the back of this cottage over an ancient pathway over a stile, and you were into a kind of wilderness garden that stood at the back. And it seemed completely untouched and head-high grass and scabby trees that had been there and could have well been there in his period. And when I went back the last time, you know, the, the Barrett homes had actually, the bulldozers were working on that field. And this little bit of edge land or liminal land or the, the buffer between states of mind was going. And I think in the same way, if you were a person whose vision in incorporated understanding that kind of village life and whatever it represents, you might well lose your soul at the moment in the same way because the, the ring roads of Peterborough just expand and expand and expand and uh, certainly the village of Glinton where Claire went to school is now simply part of this system. There's nothing in between. And you don't know where you are because, again, the... The roads there work in such a way they've been landscaped to hide the villages, to hide the fence, to hide where you are. 
So you're traveling endlessly down a green tunnel. And I think you're, you know, you're right that the sense of confusion is very much equivalent. Things happening suddenly very, very fast. Things being remade and changed and imposed. And uh, the effects of enclosure took a long time to be seen. The effects of what's happening now, I don't know. But we're, I think because we're on the edge of this shift in the culture is one of the reasons I was very much drawn to go back and relook at Claire. Another subsidiary reason was that the notion of the open fields and enclosures was actually related to a way of writing that I, I was very interested in and, and grew up on the notions of Charles Olson and the Black Mountain poets who spoke about open field poetics and were very concerned that certain kinds of verse writing were very constricted and tight and behaved in these organized ways and that it was possible to sweep aside and have a much more open way in which you would incorporate um, chunks of documented evidence, you would, lyrics would break into mythology, whatever, whatever. All, it was all inclusive. It was a kind of an opening up. And I thought the two things, in a sense, were parallel. I didn't want to stress that too heavily in the book because that would have probably been counterproductive. But it, it's important to me. There's a phrase in um, Whitechapel Scarlet Tracings where you refer to Keats, um, where uh, the, the sense is of the kind of pathetic Keats, of his heart beating too uh, fast for his body to contain. Um, so that's not it. But, um, Held too much blood, yeah. It's, um, kind of, it's from Keats's letters. Um, uh, I mean, it, it, it's that that strikes me as a kind of uh, as a as an image of kind of pathetic Keats, um, you know, the, the, um, that is quite often um, conveyed. Uh, and, and, and the sense in in um, the Edge of the Horizon and from the passage that you read earlier seems uh, uh, very different. It's a kind of stronger, more knowing figure, you know, someone that's kind of deeply engaged in the commercial process. Have you got? Do you have a different sense of? what Keats stands for now than you did when you wrote Whitechapel uh, Scarlet Tracings? Yeah, I think I do, but um, I, I don't you know, think that, that early Keats uh, about the heart not being, able, not being big enough to contain its blood, all of that. I mean, those, those were very much metaphors for me of the ghetto. You know, I was writing a lot about Whitechapel then, and I felt this place had so much heart, so much fat, so much richness, that it couldn't be contained within the the structure that was left for it, and it spilled over into the rest of London and, um, you know, undid it, and in, in the sense that, Claire, that Keats himself, I don't think he was a, a pathetic figure. You know, I, I thought he was a um, tragic figure in some ways, but he really was, I felt, the kind of ultimate voice of the city for that, a real, the real kind of indigenous Cockney poet who has vaulting ambitions and moves off. And I think my change in, in how I'd see him would largely be um, through a book called Dining on Stones, where I was very taken with this excursion out of London that Keats does. I mean, London isn't it. He, he's not going to be a Cockney poet. He's not going to write about the close-packed heart of the city. He's going to push himself to engage with huge themes. And he has this terrible trip where he goes to the Isle of Wight and he's constantly ill and he... He, f he goes to Hastings and on the south coast, which is what I was writing about, and that absolutely fascinates me that he ended up in a 
pub called the Bo Peep, which is still there, uh, in Bulverhide, and he sees this woman and uh, finesses her into his poem and also comes back to London and finds her as a mysterious figure on the streets. So I think my vision of Keats is, is sort of more generous now and more... Um, more knowing, really, than, than just the, the element I was calling on in, in, in the earlier times. But uh, I don't think I was, I was thinking of him as feeble then and empowered now. I think, you know, in both cases, it was a different kind of power. Uh, and, of course, the fact that he'd been training as a doctor at Guy's Hospital um, connected him into that early book as well in, in terms of writing about William Gull and other such figures. Yeah, I just want to quickly come back to the uh, enclosures thing. Because I've been doing a lot of walking around Blackwater Estuary and out towards Manningtree and that for various reasons over the last few years. And the thing that's extraordinary, the, field, the farms are now inks and co companies and got their web addresses outside. They're not like Barnes's or George's Farm or Jones's. It's, you know, um, we pack rubbishfoodink.co, whatever. Yeah. And then also is that some fields I have to get off because you can smell the chemicals coming yes, off. And yeah. I've had things stop. I think that's more the enclosure yeah. that we're experiencing, mm, mm. the kind of... This is strange. You know, the, the, A20, the A1, the Peterborough, is now eight lanes. Yeah. I mean, what do you do? You want to go and see your mum, mm. and she's on the other side of the eight lanes. So I think there's that. There's that can't, that great gashing. Yeah. And there's also these corporate farms, which yeah. are just chemical... And that thing you said earlier about mm. GM crops is just so right on. No, I think that's absolutely right. I think that, w that is the crucial difference, is that now, now the enclosures are corporate and global. Um, and, you know, I, I've had a lot of experiences in Thames Estuary or Thames Gateway, whatever it wants to call, moving through the landscape and discovering it's not there, that chunks of it are privatised overnight, barriers appear, you're thrown off, but the people doing it are, are kind of faceless corporate entities that you can't approach. Whereas with the, the enclosures in Clare's period, it actually is allowing a, a social class to emerge in a different way. Um, nobody's really grand... Obviously there are enclosures from above by the, the, the major landowners of the area, a couple of lords each side of that where he lived and the church and the Cambridge colleges but the really it, it allows a kind of personal thing to develop and set themselves up whereas now it's completely impersonal and it's on an epic scale and as you said there's, there's either nobody there or there's security and um, if you try and kind of walk through this exactly the sense he has of trying to walk through fields and being known he's watched all the time and challenged turned off, you know, all of those things that he describes beautifully are exactly the state of play in England at the moment. And of course, uh, if you say anything, they'll say, well, don't you know there's a, these, these are serious times, sir, they don't, there's, a, there's an alert on. I was, uh, I was in Tilbury with a, a Dutch artist whose whole work is based on um, photographing security installations. So she's an absolute expert at dealing with this and carries only false identities or no identities at all and uh, this guy kind of pulls up in a car the usual thing do you know you know you're you're taking a photograph of the ikea car park or something this is this is an absolutely criminal event and uh, what what papers can you offer and the only i only had to one was a ticket to a video library in hastings 
and one was a member of the Welsh Academy, written in Welsh. So I gave them that, and they were quite impressed, and that, <laughs> that did the trick. And then he got telling me, well, you know, you think this is bad, I've got to live on Canvey Island. So <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it is, it is a kind of, uh, I do slightly despair of the, the ability to move around at all, because as, all the time, as it, one level falls down to the next, so that as the roads become impossible, all the bikes decamp onto the canal banks. So walkers now are kind of dodging along through through a heavy traffic of cyclists. You know, inevitably they've moved on to that. I'm told that that in the in the country, I've just been talking to someone who lives near Salisbury, that there's legislation going through because all anything that was a green footpath or a green right of way can be claimed for use by off-road bikes, and so. You think you're living in a kind of quiet or remote part of the countryside. Suddenly, your every footpath is taken over by this. And if any time that has been used as a path for horse traffic or any kind of traffic, you can put in a claim to have it used and opened up to off-road biking. And I think there are people trying to engage with that because I mean, sooner or later, there's nothing left. I've been on the top of the South Downs when suddenly over the hill crest comes uh, 10,000 bikes. The ridgeway is entirely motorbikes. All of these things, all of these ways of passage are being gradually eroded for simple pedestrians. Hello. And I'm not sure I can exactly phrase this correctly because at present it's of deep personal significance. So if I'm sort of incoherent, please excuse me. Um, your work typifies, for me at least, a, a kind of intense investigative poetics and and in not to come off as being flattering but I mean in the completeness of your vision it's often kind of impenetrable uh, where you're getting your information from it almost seems that you're, inter you're drawing on the landscape and on place in a kind of almost method of osmosis um, uh, how do you investigate? How do you get your information? Is it from reading? Is it from friends? Is it? Yeah, all of these things. I mean, they're, they're in all of these books. Uh, if I can, I do put a bibliography. So, in the sense that where they come from books, you can you can check it out. Otherwise, I mean, it literally is um, mostly being on the road, uh, meeting people, talking to people, picking up whatever scraps of printed information I can find in the journey and then in the long uh, process because this, this book like this kind of cooks around and hangs around for five or six years I talk to anybody that, that uh, has got some story to tell me about it um, and just by now being so old I've been doing it a long time so I've got a kind of large frame of reference to, to draw on um, and that's really about it. I mean, the most, Im the most important thing is, after a lot of reading and after a lot of thinking, to generally to identify a particular journey and to undertake that journey. And from that, everything grows out. And if I can, I'd like to do different stages of the journey with different people because I think, I say several times in the book, that what you see depends upon who is with you when you see it. And e each person has given me a, a totally different vision and a whole series of stories, different frameworks of information, 
suggested I read different books, suggested I look at certain films, and, and gradually a kind of floating bank of information builds up and has to be um, sorted out and uh, structured. I mean, a lot of people describe these things as sort of a great unstructured soup, but that's not really the case. I you know, have quite firmly designed charts in different colors that show where different things move and pass, and so there is actually a, always an underlying structure that's quite firm, and also a structure that works through metaphors and re repeated phases and all, all of those things. But above everything else, it's just a kind of ongoing um, autobiography of, of a engagement with a particular city, place, and, and culture, and the the reading and living of, of all those years, and, that, and that's it. I don't think there's any other way to do it. Do you ever stumble, as, as, you're, as you're doing your process of inquiry, do you ever stumble on some kind of cosmic truth which is too clean to, be, to suit your method or, 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 or something that, that, that kind of doesn't fit in with the way you're going about things? Um, no, I don't think I've yet stumbled on the great cosmic truths, but I do stumble upon masses of things which can't be used or factored. I mean, um, I, I suppose about 70% of what I do is just sitting around in uh, notebooks and uh, cases and scraps and all kinds of stuff that doesn't fit, you know, that, that really... The, these books, in, in a sense, are the outtakes rather than the finished product. There's masses and masses and masses more that just goes on and on. But to make a living, I have to actually go and see a publisher and say, this is what I'm going to do. They rarely get what I say I'm going to do, but anyway, you do do that. And then after that, everything focuses around a particular project. But I, I mean, I would like it to be completely seamless and just to, to occasionally stop and uh, you know, either talk about it or, or present some fragment. I, I began, and this is where I was most comfortable, um, operating a small press, my own small press, which meant that I could sort of uh, publish whatever I wanted within economic boundaries. And, and things were cheap. In the, in the 70s, when I was publishing, the first book, I think, cost £50, which was about sort of two, two weeks' work or something, working in various labouring jobs. So then you got complete control. And... and it wasn't total vanity because at that time there was a network um, of readings and performances and events whereby you would actually sell two, three, five hundred books without too much trouble in a year or so. Um, and the shop compendium in Camden Town was like a great exchange and mart for books and ideas. Uh, and so that was feasible, and I thought that, in a sense, was the perfect way to carry on. But by the late 70s, it had, it had become impossible. It was very much more expensive to produce the books. And secondly, the audiences had shrunk and kind of lost their nerve. And, and then in the 80s, I think the only way to go was to try and persuade some mainstream publisher to pick up the burden. And that, obviously, that did cha change everything. But at this stage now, I'd be really quite happy because I think, I think that centre is beginning to collapse you know, under the very corporate things you're talking about. I mean, we're, we're really lucky to have this kind of bookshop because the, 
the major book chains now are, are becoming so focused on the small kind of group of convenient celebrity discussed novels that, that to get the kind of offbeat books that I was involved with in the early days is impossible. You know, they're just not there. And unless people use the internet or some other form of communication, I think this, this will, will, will die out and that would, be, that would be a grim thing. So I think really the main thing is to encourage a whole chain of independent local bookshops to, to try and um, counter the, the, the deadening effect of this sort of unification of culture that gives you no, seems to give you a huge choice but is actually giving you none. There was a supplement in The Independent yesterday called, um, I think, something like Disappearing Britain. It was really quite depressing, and I felt pessimistic. Um, and I suppose it's quite easy to look at Britain and London and feel a sense of loss. But when I read London Orbital, I really sensed in your writing a kind of optimism, which I found quite unique, an ability to see something like a Tesco's Express as the history of the future, which made me quite I didn't, inspired, really, and I felt it was something I hadn't really heard before, and I wondered if I'd read you right. Or no, yeah, very, very much. Um, I've, I have just finished a, a book called uh, London City of Disappearances, which is, in a sense, like the, the business of recovering the, the white stones out of the Whittlesea Mere by inviting a really interesting cross-section of people, and then a lot of them coming from nowhere that I'd never heard of. You know, about a third of them quite well known, and and the rest un unknown or forgotten, to kind of come up with their vision of London, and and it's been interesting in the way that you know you're talking about Tesco superstores and whatever as as being intriguing phenomena. Uh, some of it was that, and some of it was was a city of memory that they were quite clearly hung on to. There were there were nodal points in London that they crisscrossed many many times. And other things were, were regrets for things that were lost, but because they were written and described so vividly, they're not lost. They become part of the folk memory through the book. And I, I did, in the time of the London Orbital Walks, actually feel um, energised and excited by some of the things that could be described as being horrific. Um, looking down into the chasm of Blue Water retail shopping centre, I mean, it was both totally de-energizing and so grotesque that it was exciting. Um, and walking in the recent times through this, this new retail village in the A13 that runs from Beckton, Beckton Alp, there's a whole kind of chain of, it's like a contour lines of English culture because at Beckton itself where there's this conical mound that's my um, personal version of Silbury Hill in London, it's 99% arsenic, and it's the remains of Stanley Kubrick's Vietnam War and the Beckton and the power station. Just beyond, there's a retail park underneath that that's now, now like something completely antique and antiquarian. It's, it's got Woolworths and Matterland, but there's nobody really there except the sort of poorest people picking through this cargo cult stuff around this diseased ski slope that's no longer a ski slope. And yet, just beyond it, so it begins and the latest Sainsbury's is in a huge zone of its own. It looks, it looks like the only place where America could meet Iraq, because it looks like minarets twinned with Colonel Sanders. Uh, and it is the landscape of the future, and it, it is in itself optimistic in the sense that I, I would walk through that 
Tesco's rather than the Turner Prize. It is kind of glittering and gleaming and absolute on a, on a huge scale. But at the same time, it's also depressing because it kind of it represents the loss of freedom to move. You can only access it really by, you're supposed to only access it by car, and the moment will come when you can only access it by car. And yet you go an inch or two beyond that, and there's a beach entirely filled with concrete boats that were going to be used for the D-Day landings. And they're abandoned, and they're just, they're so surreal. What is this? And beyond that, rain and marshes, which, which is a, monster landfill site where 90% of the waste of London is smouldering in this hill that is entirely covered with birds and you talk about avian flu, this is, this is like the ultimate apocalyptic image and it's just next to all the glittering windmills and makeovers and Euro tunnels and retail parks, so I think all of that is exciting in a, in a J.G. Ballard way and it's optimistic and depressing. And uh, as long as it has the energy in it for you to write about it, then it's important and it's significant. But if, if we just succumb to it and sort of heads down and fall in with it, then I think it would be depressing. But we don't do that. I think we're, we're drawn to these edgelands and these mysterious places. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. Mm. 